five, four, three, two, one. Did you know that in the original Columbia Pictures logo, it was Irene Dunn that is photographed standing there holding the torch? Of course, Columbia Pictures at that time had been bought by Sony. And we begin the prologue of Dracula, which is intended to provide some historical background of the setting, the unique setting of the story of Vlad Tepes, who is the historical figure of Dracula. The year 1462, Constantinople had fallen. Muslim Turks swept into Europe with a vast superior force, striking at Romania, threatening all of Christendom. From Transylvania arose a Romanian knight of the sacred order of the dragon, known as Draculia. We begin the story with the tale of how the Sultan Mehmed II finally was able to conquer um, Constantinople, and it became the seat of the Sultanate. On the eve of and of course, all the countries in that area, Romania being one, the, the Balkans were uh, profoundly affected by the presence of the Islamic Sultanate there so close in, in Constantinople, which had been the Byzantine Empire. And uh, as, as Christians, the Romanians were caught between the polarity of this very powerful Ottoman Empire and the Christian European states, which were quite far away. So in a sense, the Romanians were left to, to deal with this problem. In, Vlad was uh, a ferocious warrior, and it was his uh, reputation as uh, the impaler that provided psychological warfare for the superior Turkish uh, Ottoman forces. This prologue was pretty much created after the fact by uh, my son Roman, who was the second unit director and did the special effects. And of course, the problem was we had very little money left and decided to tell this opening prologue almost as a puppet show with shadows and um, banners. We didn't have many people or soldiers and, and, and told it in a very abbreviated form, which was storyboarded and, and which uh, used the great work of our colleague Gary Guterres, who had worked on any number of title and special sequences and helped us figure out how to tell all of this history in a way that we could afford. I mean, using images, in this case, dolls and puppets and old-fashioned effects concepts such as glass shots and hanging miniatures. So when the young actress Winona Ryder came to see me and the, the purpose of our discussion was really about the fact of how she had dropped out of uh, working on Godfather Three. Winona was supposed to play the young daughter of the Godfather Three story and when she came she didn't feel well and she basically withdrew from the film leaving me in a tough spot for Godfather Three. Much later we talked about it and I didn't want to have a grudge against the young person so I tried to be nice to her and say yes I understand what happened and she said well good because I have the script of Dracula would you consider doing it and of course that was a magic word to me 
because I not only knew the book so well from this experience reading it to my little boys, but also I knew about the historical figure of Dracula, who was uh, Dracula, meaning uh, uh, son of Dracul, and Dracul was the order of the dragon, which was given to uh, certain Romanian noblemen because of their service in the very difficult situation Romania was in, being between the great Ottoman Empire, which was so close to it, and yet being Christian and, and being uh, really knights to defend Christianity. And so uh, this historical person, Dracula, who was really uh, known as Vlad Cepish, so I knew a little bit about this historical uh, king of Romania, and I knew the story of how uh, Bram Stoker had appropriated this history to combine it into a, va a vampire tale. So uh, I agreed to do it. It was a time when I was really sort of putting my life together after uh, some of the big financial setbacks that I had had, and uh, which was what led me to, to make The Third Godfather and the Dracula picture and kind of stabilize my life at a time uh, when it had been pretty rocky. The costume designer, Eko Ishioka, was given the challenge to try to find a new kind of imagery. As example, his, uh, his unusual armor. This title uh, was done as w was much of this whole prologue by Roman and by uh, our colleague Gary Guterres, a San Francisco filmmaker who worked on many, many Zoetrope films and uh, was an Academy Award winner for uh, Phil Kaufman's film, The Right Stuff. I've done everything that you asked, Master. Tom Waits uh, played Renfield, um, who was like the former <laughs> real estate man who had gone off to Transylvania to attempt to do a real estate deal with this mysterious Count Dracula, as it's told in the Bram Stoker book. The Bram Stoker novel is written in an unusual way. It's written in as a series of entries, notes, diary entries, or other documents, all in a pastiche to move the story forward, which is basically the story of a young solicitor, or I think he was like a real estate agent, as played by Keanu Reeves, Jonathan Harker, who is given the job by his firm to go to the distant East European country of Romania, to that region of it, which is called Transylvania, which technically was under the influence of the Hungarian Empire, to conclude a business deal with Count Dracula. He wished to buy some real estate in England. What in fact happened to Mr. Renfield in Transylvania? Nothing. Nothing. Personal problems. Close these transactions, and your future with this firm is assured. Yes, sir. So Harker is sent on his way uh, to make this trip by train to conclude it. Of course, before going, he, he bids adieu to his sweetheart, his fiancée, as played by Winona Ryder. Of course, they're about to be married, and she's very reluctant that he go away from her. Uh, all of these settings were done uh, at the sound stages, formerly uh, MGM, in fact. This was a great 
big soundstage that had a, um, a pool, and this was the pool where Esther Williams made all of her films uh, in the MGM era. We begin now uh, uh, something that is part of the style of the picture in that we pre-visualized or pre-designed how everything would work. And my son Roman worked extensively on this and shot many of these sequences. These scenes you're seeing with the train going over the diary and the eyes and face of Dracula in the windows were all done in camera, meaning that um, the shot of him by the window was shot and then the film was wound by hand. In this case, the image of the map is projected on his face. Everything is live. It's not done in post-production as it would be done in the modern times. This plate that you see in the window with the landscape of the Carpathian Mountains and the eyes of the mysterious Count are all being combined in the film. It's a, a an effect not unlike the great German silent director G.W. Pabst or Marnau, who made Nosferatu, would have done. Uh, it's interesting, I see the uh, letter and he says, your friend D. For a while I was suggesting that we perhaps just call the movie D with a period, uh, just to try to designate it as being a little different from the more familiar uh, Dracula movies. Uh, but I guess that wasn't such a good idea. At any rate, it wasn't an idea that was, that was used. Must be so nice to see strange countries. I wonder if we, I mean, Jonathan... The script written by Jim Hart tried to follow, and I agreed very much to follow the, uh, the story as it was in the book, to make a version of Dracula that was very much like the book. Not only did I know the book well, had I, I, I used to read it to my little uh, camp students when I was a um, camp counselor, but also I had the entire cast sit around for probably three days and read the book aloud, something that really frustrated uh, Anthony Hopkins. didn't see for the life of him why I wanted to have them read the entire book. And of course, I, I did because I wanted to be sure they all read the book. And also, I was hoping we'd discover something in the book that had been left out. We did work with wolves. They were real wolves, and they're, they're tricky to work with. You, you have to be very respectful of their territory. Uh, the scene where the ghostly driver of the coach picks up Harker was a, a problem for me at first because I remember the book described how the coachman just reached his hand over to Harker and the hand just seemed to extend so far and literally pick him up and lift him up into the coach. And there was a lot of concern of how we could do this as a live action, meaning this really was photographed as it was happening, and the uh, special effect man went home when we failed to know how to do it and came back with a solution that was quite interesting, involving the coachman and Harker standing on boards of wood that were leveraged in such a way that we could actually move the coachman to reach for him and move him into the room. This shot is a glass shot, which means part of the scene is painted on a, 
piece of uh, glass, and then uh, the real coach, which is in a sound stage, is shot through that glass or in conjunction with that glass to enable uh, it to look as though you're seeing the whole image. This was a very common way to do effects in the, in the golden age of movies before these things could be accomplished with the digital and other effects. Much of this movie really is a theatrical illusion, uh, uh, which was my goal. Is, is I wanted to find a new way to 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 find imagery for the story, um, and I had this fabulous studio to work with. Already, you can see one of the themes of the visualization of the movie, which is uh, the use of shadows. It, it, it was my idea that. In the presence of a metaphysical phenomenon such as a vampire, that the laws of nature, of physics, don't really work correctly. Shadows seem to be liberated from the person casting them. Things fall up instead of fall down. Uh, that you know you're in a realm of supernatural because subtly things don't happen correctly. Now, it's well known that once you step into the world of a vampire, you cannot be harmed unless you voluntarily take that step yourself. And so when Harker takes those first steps over across the threshold, he has willingly put himself into the realm of that vampire and thus is in danger. Um, I was also told that once by Mario Puzo in regard to the mafia that the mafia would be people who were truly in the mafia. He had never met anyone and, 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 uh, that was actually associated in the mafia. And he advised me never to willingly know them, to let them know your phone number or that you would be friendly with them. And I often thought that the same rule was the rule of the vampire, that when dealing with the mafia, if you did not invite them into your life by, by way of accepting their friendship or a gift, or which was probably stolen, by the way, or go to one of their good restaurants, that they could never have any... They, they would respectfully not intrude in your life. And I always followed that rule given by uh, Mario, and therefore I never had any encounter or, or, or any knowledge of any mafia person, despite having made a film that was well-known about that group of people. And uh, by the same token, had Jonathan Harker not voluntarily walked over uh, uh, Dracula's uh, uh, threshold, he would not have been in danger. Blood. Of course, this performance uh, of Gary Oldman uh, attempted to blaze a new trail, uh, making use of the historical Vlad Tepish, the picture of which is on the portrait, and as well as um, a character, the eccentric count living in an old castle that had been made so famous by Bela Lugosi. And we felt very much that we were going to go in another direction, for, for better or for worse, and try to find a new kind of imagery. And a part of this was we were going to have costumes and imagery that was totally different. Forgive me. Another interesting example of the detail that my son Roman did. 
In this scene, uh, you begin to sense something strange, which is that the shadow is not moving exactly in sync with the person casting. That's because, of course, we were casting that shadow with another actor who was done up in that costume. And that enabled, again, these strange things of where Dracula walks off to the left and the shadow's still there, and yet he's able to walk in from the right. Clearly, Jonathan Harker should have noticed, if, if, if not alone from the hairdo and the strange red robe, that there was something amiss with this guy and that there was something very, very um, mysterious in terms of the world he was entering. Uh, of course, there was the photograph of, of Tom Waits as Renfield, uh, as had been the uh, predecessor of Keanu Reeves' character, that he, he was the one who went first that they never heard from again. Again, the shadow, whenever you see the shadow and Dracula in the similar um, frame, you realize that uh, they, the shadow seems to have its own will and its own movement. And it was actually pretty tough to do. The guy was there behind uh, the scene often with a television monitor. He was reputed to be an expert meme who could do this, but it was... It was much harder. It was easy to do something so different from what the principal was doing, but what was harder uh, was to have it match it in a, a way long enough to uh, be a convincing shadow before it had its own independent movement. Are you married, Count? Again, you see the shadow is is independently moving. I was married once. Ages ago, it seemed. She died. Oh. I'm very sorry. She was fortunate. My life at its best is... Of course, um, the hair uh, design was part of the costume, really, and part of the vision of Eko Isioka, and... Uh, uh, who was the costume designer, but she was really... I hired her to do the costumes, but Echo was a great graphic artist in Japan, and I was looking for a really innovative design concept for the way the characters would look, again, to get away from the Bela Lugosi or the previous Draculas, which sort of all followed that direction and, and tried to do something just more striking and... Uh, you know, one of a kind, and, uh, you know, when you do things like that, you're always on the verge of the ridiculous. Again, that, that was an homage to John Carradine, the way he lifts up the cloak. I always remember John Carradine in Dracula movies doing that and turning into a bat. The film, as I watch it now, I haven't seen it since, um, really, those days, and it's... Uh, uh, it is, and it was meant to be full of visual imagery that tried to court the surreal. And uh, in a great tradition of surrealism, of course, uh, the films of Jean Cocteau and uh, uh, other films. Ah, that's my missing Persian print. I can't find that print, and I know I loaned it to the uh, movies to be able to... Um, uh, do this scene, and of my entire Richard Burton collection of Arabian Nights, that book is missing. Is your ambitious John Harker forcing you to learn that ridiculous machine? 
There was some difference opinion on how I imagined the settings and the sets vis-a-vis -vis the, the costumes. I had planned uh, this notion that, in a sense, the costumes would be the sets, and I didn't want to have very, very distinctive and unusual and elaborate sets. And uh, I did have a disagreement with the first production designer who I felt went way over the top in terms of the, you know, it's hard to tell a production designer that, oh, well, in this movie, the costumes are the sets. And, uh, and so ultimately, I was forced to fire him, something that shocked him greatly. And I hired two young uh, production designers, uh, Tom Sanders, and a wonderful young man named Andrew Precht, uh, who rose to the occasion and uh, in the difficulty of coming in after um, the previous art director had left, leaving me there. And uh, Andrew and uh, Thomas came in and, and did a remarkable job. My rich friend. Yes, but not even one marriage proposal. But here I am, almost 20. Practically a hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look. What is that? A text. The characters in Dracula, in this production of Dracula, the young doctor who is caring for. Uh, Lucy and, and the, the cowboy who comes in are all quite authentically taken from the book, and those characters all exist. There are many of them, her suitors. Ultimately, they later on form the group that follows the mad Dr. Helsing, uh, who has his vampire uh, killers, uh, many of whom were, were Lucy's former suitors. We had a wonderful group of actors who participated with this, and we got to rehearse together. And again, the costumes were so uh, appropriate. Richard E. Grant, a wonderful British actor whom I had seen in a movie called With Nail and I, played Dr. Seward, and uh, Bill Campbell played the... Uh, the American, um, this is the noble young lord played by Carrie Elways, and uh, they, they were such an enthusiastic young group of people. They all came to Napa, I remember, for a week or so of rehearsal, and I staged all sorts of wacky adventures for them to go on in order to bond together in characters. I remember that the three suitors I ordered a hot air balloon to come so that they could go ballooning together. And uh, one morning they came and there was the hot balloon there, but it was too windy, so they just went up and it was tethered by a rope, but they sort of had their adventure. Again, we use the shadow of Dracula to begin to express his uh, power that from literally a coffin in the hole of a boat or wherever he is, he is able to reach out to uh, find her and, and threaten her ultimately, but we also understand that she is the, the living likeness, almost a reincarnation of his uh, long-lost love. Partly, um, the movie was interested in technology, so there's constantly new dictating machines and new cinematographic devices. George. 
Here's Echo's very curious costumes for the people who work in the mental asylum. It looks like they have cage boxes on their heads, presumably so the inmates can attack them. Here we have the wonderful, brilliant Tom Waits in a, in a memorable performance. I'm heartbroken that when they show this movie on television, they always cut these sequences out. Perhaps they're too weird. I know they're trying to save time, but it's such a strange character and look at these odd things on his hands to prevent him from uh, doing damage to himself. And he, of course, is so thrilled to have his little creatures because he, having been inoculated by Dracula, craves life, craves blood, and makes do with the few insects he's able to uh, to attract. Of course, he is under the care of Richard E. Grant's character, Dr. Seward, and uh, his behavior is notably being studied as for what evidence it can ultimately then contribute to the strange things that begin to happen in London with the shadow of the oncoming of, uh, of Count Dracula. The story originally in, the, in the, the, the Bram Stoker novel is told in any number of excerpts, as I said, uh, uh, the diaries of Minna Harker or, um, in this case, the, the medical journals of Dr. Seward. I need lives for the master. Master, what master? The master will come. And he has promised to make me immortal. How? Again, we have now a sequence uh, executed by Roman with multiple image, again, all done in the camera. It was our idea that the castle of Dracula, again, to try to find imagery that could be a little different than what was previously done, but that the castle itself of Count Dracula look a little bit like Dracula. Uh, this was a live-action effect. Here you see there's a mirror, and you don't see Dracula reflected in the mirror, but you do see his hand. And it was hard to do, and I don't remember how we did it. And then when he turns, of course, Dracula's in another place, and Dracula just seems to float around. Every little detail in the film of how they uh, he moved or walked or what happened was done uh, in, a, in a stylized way to, to try to, um, again, express this idea that in the presence of a metaphysical being, the laws of nature were all uh, arrived. foul bones of men's vanity. Perhaps you should grow beard. This, of course, was a memorable moment, uh, the way Gary did it primarily. I'm not exactly sure where the idea came from. It may have been partly uh, in collaboration with Gary Oldman, who is a very intelligent, inventive person, and who, of course, who has directed uh, films himself. The photographer of 
the film was Michael Bauhaus, and um, he he was a fine gentleman. I, I think during much of the filming, he was very um, confused as to what the overall concept of this film was. I mean, it's it's a journey into surrealism and manipulation of of uh, imagery. I mean, in this scene, things are happening. Perhaps you can't tell, but the walls are actually moving in closer and closer on them, uh, producing the effect of being sort of um, closed in by the character. But we were constantly moving walls and having shadows that didn't belong or, or doing scenes backwards. Our ways are not your ways. There's a real, uh, just a collection of old-fashioned visual effects uh, used in the picture, and, and, and many times you don't really even uh, see what's happening, but rather uh, you're feeling uh, that you're in an extremely surreal environment and uh, that, you're in a, um, that you're in a world not governed by any natural laws. But most of it is in, I mean, almost all of it is from the Bram Stoker book and from his imagination and uh, lines. I mean, there the, <laughs> the robe goes out and the shadow goes after to follow it. I haven't seen this for a while, but it's full of a, a treasure box of uh, strange effects. In this case, uh, again, Bram Stoker described how Dracula was seen to be able to crawl up the sides of uh, of buildings, uh, and of course, uh, we did many of these things by having the set be lying flat on the ground and having him crawl uh, across the uh, the floor, basically, but looking as though he's going up or down a building. I said nothing of my fears, as he will read them, no doubt. I know now that I am a prisoner. Again, the laws of gravity being defied. This is a multiple image shot by Roman, which he did it in subsequent exposure. Um, you, you know, I there are certain people who basically don't like this kind of theatricalization. Although, you know, I mean, I think with Dracula, a movie that had been made so many times, you either go one extreme kind of which I did, a kind of uh, theatricalized, do it all in the studio, or perhaps you could go in the opposite direction and do an almost super real, um, naturalistic uh, version of it. I could see that. I mean, in that case, I would have gone to Romania and I would have tried to endow the film with a kind of naturalism, despite the very uh, uh, fanciful and surreal nature of the story. But I knew that I had to go one way to the left or the right of what the bellwether Dracula was, which was the Bell Lugosi Dracula. Here again, the drops float upward. Uh, I, I was always trying to show that all of our familiar rules of existence were, were being contradicted or defied. So, you know, I think the photographer was always resisting some of these strange notions. 
we, we consulted with a, a, a magician who builds uh, equipment for stage magicians, and we devised a special bed out of which um, these brides could appear and these footsteps could appear out of nothing. Uh, but the idea was that these women should materialize right out of the bed. And uh, this young lady is, of course, the very well-known uh, actress Monica Bellucci. This was her first uh, film. Uh, she was quite a beautiful woman. I think Roman had seen her picture in a magazine. Whenever you have to shoot something involving sex, it is so tough. You know, you are very clear when you cast the, in the case of women, because men are even tougher than women. The men are so funny about showing as much as their belly button, God forbid anything else. Of course, everyone is shy, and even though, in this case, the girls had all agreed that there would be nudity in their contracts, when they came on stage, they were all sort of covered up. And then I would say, hey, Roman, tell them to take off their clothes. And Roman said, I'm not going to tell them to take off their clothes. Uh, he said to the assistant director, oh, okay, tell them to take off their clothes. And nobody wanted to tell them to take off their clothes. And that's usually what it's like. But I agree that, uh, that uh, those scenes are uh, not comfortable for anyone. And, I, and when I see the Dracula uh, material of the smoochy scene there with them all kissing him and stuff, uh, I was just dying, and I just was so uncomfortable. But I must say, in looking back on it, it really was okay. The other brides, there was a, a, a lovely young lady from Israel, I, as I remember. Her name was Michela, and uh, the Romanian young lady was Florina. And she also consulted with us on Romanian matters uh, and helped us uh, uh, speak the language. She was quite a bright young lady. Dracula's entrance was on some sort of rail device so we can just speed him right on the scene. And then there was the strange motion of the two brides together, which was we had worked hard with Michael Smuin, a choreographer, to try to get uh, the, the girls. And I think at one point we had gymnasts involved in doing that. But uh, this was all in the desire to be constantly offering up... Uh, uh, you know, kind of an experience uh, that would would, um, would would put you in the strange mood of, of the story. I found it so difficult to do this scene which so revolts um, uh, Keanu, but the, this was a brand new little infant. And I always thought when I held this baby, it was only born recently from when we shot this, I was so careful to do it in a way that exposed the baby to the little bit of handling as possible. But I always thought I would love to see that baby again. I held her in my hands and thought that, that, oh, I'd love to see you in, um, in future years. And it reminds me I should, I should try to find out who that baby was so I can go bring her a present or something. Dearest Mina, all is well here. The Count has insisted I remain for a month to tutor him in English custom. I can say no more, except I love you. Ever faithful, Jonathan. The letters I have written have undoubtedly sealed my doom. The Count's gypsies 
Fearless warriors who are loyal to the death to whatever nobleman they serve. Day and night they toil, filling boxes with decrepit earth from the bowels of the castle. They are to be delivered to his newly acquired Carfax Abbey in London. Why do they fill these boxes with earth? In the shot of Dracula kind of rising up to the frame, that was what we call in the movie racket, we call it an homage. But that was for sure an homage for Nosferatu in this extraordinary moment when the Dracula figure rises up in that way. And um, I just had to have that in the, in the movie because it was something I always loved when I saw uh, Nosferatu, which, as I as I've said, is, is probably the greatest Dracula movie ever made, and a silent movie. You know, what is it? It's the most exciting day of my life. You don't seem to care. It's just that I'm so terribly worried about Jonathan. This letter I received is so, it's so cold. This uh, is the work of Andrew and Tom. The garden, again, is built into the uh, swimming pool that was Esther Williams' swimming pool. You know, we wanted to show the the effect of the coming of Dracula even on the girl. He's on the ship in his coffin buried in the earth of Transylvania. And it's beginning to influence even those girls in England. This is a, a sequence uh, trying to express the, the, the crates of boxes of Dracula's belongings, including himself in a kind of almost uh, uh, embryonic state in the box and of course the movement of the ship on the water is now translated even to the girls in their garden and maze uh, trying to unify uh, the turmoil of storm that is about to reach them uh, as though the, the, the earth of this um, English estate is moving and the animals in the zoo are all becoming like a boat uh, I would, uh, if I'm trying to think back as to who this would be an homage to, I would say Abel Gantz, who was very, very comfortable with using the movement of the camera to express a unifying idea such as this. uneasy believes someone or something is aboard the ship with us. You know, all hell is breaking loose in the asylum because the coming of the boat, again, the metaphor is that the, uh, uh, the boat is expressed by boat-like movement even in a rock-solid place like an asylum, but he's getting so stoked, Renfield, that his master is coming and, and uh, again, authentically told from the book Seward is shooting up uh, himself with with uh, with morphine, and uh, the the emotion of all the characters is being intensified by the mere approach of this this prince of darkness, uh, who arrives on the shore uh, uh, in England and uh, 
no doubt has killed and taken the blood out of all the sailors so that it's totally um, a dead ship. And now using a technique uh, called pixelation in which we just shot a few frames at a time to try to give a curious uh, point of view look for the, the spirit of, of, of Dracula. Roman shot that pixelation. I think it was a term uh, that comes from certain experimental filmmakers, uh, maybe in the San Francisco period in the 50s. It's interesting that, you know, a filmmaker, you know, as a young person, I saw all this stuff, saw all these films, uh, experimental films from San Francisco, Jordan Belson, Stan Brakhage, uh, the great works of G.W. Pabst and Marnell, and uh, uh, the, the other uh, Dracula stories, Carl Dreyer, and all of us are really sort of like just receiving this, and then it's all mixed up in our own personalities and souls, and then we put it out in some new form. It's a process of gathering from everyone and our own life experience, and then uh, like putting it together in, in, a, in a form that it had never existed before. And, uh, you, you know, I always tell the young filmmakers I meet that, you know, the different writers, Balzac and the different filmmakers, they want you to take what they've done and if they want, just copy it because you never really copy it. You, it's impossible for you to copy it. You, you put it out in your own form and then that makes the... Uh, I read that once of Balzac saying, oh, we want the young writers to take from us because if they take from us and put it in their work, then we'll be immortal. And, and that is the tradition. We are inspired by others, and then hopefully, if we're fortunate, uh, we inspire people who come after them. I'm a little surprised by this movie is, I haven't seen it in such a long time, but it never stops doing stuff. It's hard for me to talk about it because normally on doing a commentary in a movie, oh yeah, he's like actually seeing the blood coursing through her veins. These are all ideas that we hoped to do when we planned it out. And then of course we had to find ways to be able to do this imagery, but and some work, really very, very successfully, and some uh, not at all. But you can see that it was a production that was uh, full of ideas and uh, uh, basically innovations to try to bring this old uh, tale, this beloved you know, horror classic, Stoker's uh, Dracula, once again to film without just following the path of what had been done before. You know, if it had... Uh, used what had been done before, I would say, well, yes, it used, uh, you know, Beauty and the Beast by Cocteau or uh, all these other references uh, that I'm trying to acknowledge here and now so that you can have the extreme pleasure of going back to films like Beauty and the Beast and Nosferatu and Vampire by Carl Dreyer and, and the other projects that uh, have their DNA in this movie, as it were.
Contrary to some beliefs, the vampire, like any other night creature, can move about by day, though it is not his natural time, and his powers are weak. That was a good shot, is that like he's in this box and he bursts out young and healthy and so vital. This sequence is actually shot with a Pathé camera, hand-cranked camera. I wanted to shoot much more of it with the camera, but the photographer was less than interested. But it really has a wonderful sense of the period. This is really being shot uh, the way early silent movies were shot on the same camera with uncoated lenses. Very, very intriguing. Um, I know there was lots of debate as to whether or not a vampire could, in fact, walk around in the daytime. Because in this scene and in the book, there was a sense that it did happen. And, and uh, I was able to uncover in the lore uh, as to where these things came from, such as a vampire can't be seen in a mirror, and a vampire cannot, uh, cannot walk around in the daylight. But I, and in this case, you see that he's there looking at the window, but his, his reflection is not in the glass. And I don't remember it now, but I felt convinced that I had justification, and, and whether it was in the Bram Stoker book or something else, that I could portray him, uh, that he could be in daylight. Again, this little effect went by so fast that she drops the medicine and he picks it up, but then it's up high. We were constantly doing sort of almost like uh, magic to again show you that she was in the presence of, of someone uh, who was not bound to uh, uh, adhere to the rules of nature. I have offended you. I'm only looking for the cinematograph. I understand it is a wonder of the civilized world. If you seek culture, then visit a museum. London is filled. Excuse me. He's standing there behind her walking away. And then as she approached, he's standing there on the other side. So there are hundreds of such staging uh, tricks to confuse her and to uh, hopefully delight the audience to be in the presence of this, this unusual uh, figure, you know, here as a count, as a, also a suitor, as a lover, uh, because he's come in our story and in Jim Hart's script, the innovation is that his whole reason for wanting to once again be united with Mina is because of his love for Elisabetta, who somehow she is the reincarnation of. I've always had the theory myself, because this theme of a reincarnation of a woman comes up in a number of my projects, and actually it comes up in this recent film that I've made, uh, Youth Without Youth. Uh, I've always had the theory that, you know, a man loves the same woman all his life, uh, even if she takes the form of different women. But ultimately, from day one, a man loves the same woman all his life, and she is him. You know, one of the interesting things about this Dracula story, and um, I think a positive thing, is that we told it as a love story. This really wasn't in the Bram Stoker book. 
it was a little bit in the history of Vlad Tepes himself that there was some root of this supposed story of a beloved. And of course, this we would credit Jim Hart for, for finding the story and weaving it into the, into the Dracula story. But I think it was the Turks deliberately sent an arrow, and we did it that way, to, uh, to her saying that he had been killed in battle and when it, in fact it wasn't true. So he returned to find his beloved had killed herself. And here's your doctor. Here you see the extraordinary um, dress, wedding dress, uh, made for Sadie Frost by um, Eko Ishioka. And this dress is uh, is extraordinary piece of work of design and execution, as, as all the costumes are. and. Uh, and uh, people can actually see these these costumes at the Francis Coppola Winery in Geyserville uh, in Sonoma. It's a beautiful, beautiful collection. I liked Sadie Frost. She was a very nice girl and, and you know, appealing and, and, and pretty and sexy. Uh, I was sort of surprised. So many young people have come through our doors and, and, and started and uh, go on to become great stars. I guess she made other choices. She had many children. She was married, and um, we haven't seen much of her uh, after the debut in Dracula. But she was a nice girl and very good to work with. I would watch my colonial tongue if I were you. Again, I'm always pleased to remind the audience that absolutely every single scene in this movie was shot inside a soundstage. And, and uh, you know, rarely does is a movie 100% shot in a soundstage. And uh, I think this is. And uh, especially when we get to the bigger scenes at the end of the big chase on the Borgo Pass. Clearly, um, Lucy is being affected by her uh, her encounter with Dracula and is being um, affected uh, in a way, affected and infected, I should say, because she has the, uh, the metaphoric um, blood of a vampire in her, which means that she too will be a vampire. He's my teacher and mentor. Do it, man. I guess a lot of this myth uh, uh, comes uh, uh, from, uh, you know, it's ironic because even in modern time we have the, the fear of the infected blood given to us by someone. I mean, the whole metaphor of AIDS and, and earlier diseases and plagues and uh, leprosy and uh, metaphorically, uh, you know, a sex offender can... Uh, abuse a young person and that young person grows up to be an offender. I guess this is a bit of knowledge that humans have known a long time, this, this, um, this contagion. Astounding. There are no limits to science. How can you call this science? Here was a scene in which we tried, uh, Roman and I were very pleased to do this, uh, to, to try to portray an early uh, Nickelodeon, and, uh, and, and in fact, even on the screen are some very early motion pictures and exhibits of how magicians used illusions and used cinema in, in this, in the way movies were first shown in the, these days, in the, a magic room. This shot of 
Dracula literally sweeping her off her feet, of course, uh, was a mechanical effect. Uh, he takes her, and then they're on a little trolley that is pulled. Um, it was interesting, when I did this shot with her, just to show the kind of kid that Winona was, she looked at me. I mean, she was a little too smart for her own good, in a way, as a as a kid. She said, well, I've already done this shot once, because this was a tricky setup. They had to step onto this moving thing. And I said, oh, really? She said, oh, yes, I did it with Tim Burton. <laughs> but I have always felt that Winona had a deeper well of talent than she was willing to dip into. That effect, by the way, was known as the magic box. That was a real illusion, as was the staging of the uh, battle at Constantinople with puppets, and we showed the backings of how it works. This movie is full of little treasures uh, that you almost have to go slow for to see how these things were reconstructed, because in this scene, with the cinema being shown along with other novelties, the puppets, and the, the magic box, which was an illusion that you just saw, uh, it was sort of like how the birth of cinema happened and uh, exhibition, uh, what became the modern movie and God help us, the multiplex, began as a little hall of wonders uh, in, in a way that we commemorated in this uh, movie, you know, to show the, the marriage really of the date of the creation of Dracula in around 1900 with the, um, with the birth of the cinema. Don't ever try this with the wolf, by the way. This, uh, <laughs> this is not something you want to do. Again, it's used to, to show uh, Dracula's you know, seduction of Mina the sensuality that, that lay under the skin of um, the vampire legend. It, it's so confused with sex and romance and love and death. Um, the two sometimes are difficult to separate, as we, as we, we know and has been pointed out in uh, much literature and, and, and cinema and theater. Here we have a miniature of the, uh, of the manor. There's a small building that is meant to show it a distance away. We play the scene at the gate. So yes, that's a miniature house standing quite close to the gate, but giving the illusion of perspective. Again, you see there's always an interest in modern technology in this movie because it was the turn of the century and so much was happening. Telegraphs and telephones and microscopes and, you know, this whole uh, dictating machines and all kinds of stuff, and we tried to, uh, to show it all. Now we introduce essentially a new character, Dr. Von Helsing, who's such a, 
important a character in in the second half of the story as he is the one who comes and uh, basically is the only force capable of being able to resist or hopefully have have knowledge or secrets that could counter the, the magical powers of Dracula. You know, it was my, uh, of course we had a great actor, but it was my hope or my feeling to show that anyone who had made his profession pursuing the occult and the strange dark secrets of science such as Dr. von Helsing, it was my thought to try to make him a little crazy himself or a little eccentric, to say the least. You know, I encouraged the doctor to to go in that direction, to be as uh, kind of strange and colorful a character as as was Dracula. I mean, in a sense, uh, you had Dracula on one side of the equation and you had Dr. Van Helsing on the other, and uh, they had to, in some way, be comparably weird, <laughs> or at least that was the choice I made. That blood rolling down the floor was a beautiful effect shot. Barely alive, so I cannot escape. I will try one last time today to escape through the water. There must be passageway to the river. And then away from this cursed land, where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. Again, the pixelation to, um, to imply the vampire's point of view. And now we have the arrival of Dr. Van Helsing uh, at the scene. He is now going to conduct the um, uh, the investigation and and ho hopefully provide the uh, the means of uh, defeating Dracula. I remember the window for Lucy's bedroom. Uh, talk about another homage, this big window. I, I saw a movie, a great, great Frank Capra movie, uh, which you all must see with Barbara Stanwyck called The Bitter Tea of General Yen. And uh, it's a great movie. And um, there's a big window in, uh, in a bedroom somewhere that I think uh, was in the back of my mind when I asked the director, art directors to put this window in. A lot of Lucy's um, movements here are done backwards. And just the idea that the presence of, of Dracula in the form of the shadow just would kill anything alive. You know, the flowers die as the shadows pass. I always come to my friends and need when they call me. So, Jack, tell me everything about your case. She has all the usual physical anemic signs. Yeah? Her blood analyzes normal, and yeah. yet it is not. She manifests continued blood loss. I can't trace the cause. Blood loss how? I... We brought in a, a, a singer, a vocalist named Diamante Galant, who provided some very uh, uh, or, or, orgiastic and other feminine sounds of, uh, of intensity and uh, to help us with this sequence. Oh my God, she's only a child. Yeah. Interestingly, a blood transfusion, another example of a modern technology at the time, and we did it as authentically as we knew how. We, we really tried to find out, well, how did they do 
transfusions and we did it the way they did. However, uh, shows what a pansy director I am. I it wasn't really a transfusion; it was just a uh, uh, you know movie scene. But uh, the the great director Clouseau in uh, one of his movies uh, actually had to have the character get a blood transfusion and uh, the actor showed up and uh, they began to shoot the scene and he had brought a doctor and they did a real blood transfusion actually while they were shooting it so i realized you know i'm not as crazy as i'm uh, as i like to think i am and uh, damn why didn't i have it be a real transfusion but you know Clouseau was Clouseau and i'm I don't think I would have gotten away with it. My point that both Frankenstein and Dracula, arguably America's two favorite horror figures, come from the same root, is based on a story that actually took place on a lake in Switzerland when um, four young people went on a trip. They were Shelley, his wife Mary Shelley, the great uh, Lord Byron, and a friend uh, of Byron's, a Dr. Polidori. Now, these people in those days were sort of like uh, the equivalent of, uh, you know, Snoop Doggy Dog. They were the, the hip people of the day, as when I was young, it would have been uh, Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer and what have you, going off to Switzerland. And they decided that each of them, while staying in a castle uh, on a lake in Switzerland, would write a, a, a horror story, a ghost story as it were. And uh, of course, Mary Shelley, who was not much older than 17, at that young age wrote the classic Frankenstein. And it's felt that uh, Frankenstein was somewhat based on the intriguing character of Lord Byron. Byron was, of course, the famous poet. Uh, Byron was very handsome, but he had a club foot. And so when he walked, he was a large man. Uh, somehow this uh, inspired in Mary Shelley's impressionable mind the figure of the, of the inarticulate uh, monster Frankenstein, and those of you who have read the, the, the real Frankenstein book, uh, uh, the monster has really a, a soul and, uh, of course, uh, speaks out in that desire uh, to know why he was made, if he would only to suffer. But uh, the Dr. Polidori, who was the companion of Byron, who was probably uh, um, in love with Byron uh, in, 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 a, in a way that was unspeakable, he wrote uh, a vampire tale, and this vampire tale was Varney the Vampire, which became an enormous success in England and ultimately inspired Bram Stoker, due to its success, to write uh, Dracula. And, and Varney uh, was a, a vampire also inspired by Byron, who was a man so charming and attractive, and if you imagine that uh, Dr. Polidori was, uh, was secretly in love with him, the idea of a, of a figure who, like, uh, by his attractiveness, sucks the life, sucks the blood out of you. So he cast Byron in his mind as a, uh, as a vampire. And so thus, our two favorite characters, the, the, the monster Frankenstein and the vampire Dracula, both really stem uh, from Lord Byron. I think this is a fascinating uh, piece of history uh, behind these two classic Gothic stories. Thinking back on this movie, it wasn't a terribly enjoyable experience for me. Um, I was very happy to be there working with my son, and I remember I was sort of in a funk during the film, and I liked having the chance to do all these wacky ideas and... Uh, I remember being very disgruntled over the fact that I had 
tried so hard and indeed executed very hard doing it exactly on schedule and on budget and so much to the point that I remember going to the executives and saying, look, we're now a week uh, ahead of schedule and could I have the money that that week represents and spend it on additional special effects? And they studied it and said, indeed, you are um, ahead on the budget and so you can have the money for these extra special effects. And then about two weeks later, I get this visit from this uh, obnoxious studio executive who tells me that they've just gotten a bill of all people from the studio, which is to say from them, and somehow their accounting system was broken, but there were many, many more light rentals and equipment rentals uh, that uh, anyone knew about, and it really you know, made me feel frustrated, and I had tried and succeeded to make this big production on you know, what was not a super affluent budget, but certainly a respectable budget, and I had done it so carefully, and uh, even to the point that they themselves agreed that I was ahead of budget, and then to be told that, oh, their billings were, were screwed up, and therefore I was suddenly magically over budget so that they could do what they like to do so much, which is to come in and castigate you and... This sequence, by the way, on a more pleasant subject, was the absinthe sequence, and Roman did such beautiful uh, effects work in it to weave the legendary and somewhat magical uh, effects of, of the drink absinthe, which was, of course, made illegal around this time, or a little later, primarily because it was the first aperitif that was made out of something other than grapes, and all the grape owners and makers of aperitifs which came from grapes really got together and got it banned for its uh, dangerous effects, notably because of a murder that happened in France where some man drank some absinthe and then got crazy, went home and murdered his family. But no one had said that before he drank the absinthe, he had drunk uh, two quarts of brandy and sniffed uh, so many tons of uh, various other drugs and uh, so absinthe was made illegal uh, probably quite um, unfairly because it basically threatened what was the, uh, the reigning uh, business, which was making aperitifs out of grapes. But we tried to have a love scene with imagery uh, liberated by the thought that they're drinking absinthe. As with every scene, there was a new challenge of how can we show the past, show her resonance with the ancient woman that he had loved and uh, again present Dracula as a romantic uh, figure rather than just a monster. Princess, she's I think this movie um, you know was thought of many different ways but among the most enthusiastic people who seem to have enjoyed the film are women. It's that the uh, I guess the nature of the love story. I mean, everybody at some point is in love with someone who's bad for them. Uh, certainly being in love with Dracula would fit that description. I thought at the time Winona Ryder was a very talented young lady, and like so many people who start when they're really young, they just have a gift. But one of the possible problems with that is that they tend to not go all the way. There comes a point where they know so much it almost works against them. But I will not be surprised if Winona suddenly is in some movie at any time and 
just astonishes everyone. This is definitely an homage to Cocteau, but a lovely image that takes her tears and gives them to her as diamonds. Every man would like to do that if he makes the woman he loves cry. Choosing a composer for a movie is always a very important thing in, in any project, but for me in particular, being the son of a composer, uh, being raised in a musical household, I very much wanted a classical score. And my knowledge told me that some of the greatest classical composers were in the East European world, particularly in Poland, partly to do with the state sponsorship of classical music. And for a long time, the composer I really wanted to do it was a, a great Polish composer named uh, Lutosławski. I eventually tracked him down um, at a concert where he was conducting his own work, and when I proposed that he might consider doing a score for me, his reaction was sort of like at the level of, I mean, young man, do you know how many hours it takes me to write one minute of music? And that the, the implication being that at that level of classical music, uh, and, and it's not only the composition, it's the orchestration, uh, it is a very arduous, time-consuming job to compose so many minutes of music. It's not as we think of it where you, oh, you get a motif and uh, possibly bring in an orchestrator and you play the theme over and over again. So uh, at that level of handmade music, it's incredibly uh, time-consuming. And basically what he was saying is, uh, you know, he wouldn't be able to devote the time to write whatever it is, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of, of new uh, music. And uh, actually, in truth, he died not that long after that brief meeting. But I continued um, researching Polish composers, and I was very interested in Legaty, Gorecki, many wonderful composers, some of which I heard in uh, Stanley Kubrick's last film, although it was not original composition. I believe he used existing uh, work of those composers, but ultimately I was um, led to consider the notion of, uh, of Kilar, another Polish composer, uh, to uh, write the score, and I approached him and he was willing. And what I noticed uh, from that experience, he, what he wrote was very, very effective and in fact uh, really has weathered time very well, and for y years I would see trailers of movies coming out that had just used uh, his music for Dracula in the trailer. And um, what I noticed was he wrote about three or at the most four cues. I think it was three, a love theme, a kind of initial, uh, very dramatic theme, and, and, and then a third theme. And he gave me these three themes and we recorded them. Uh, and that was all he gave me, and, and we had a whole movie that we had to score, and we had these three themes, and I said, well, can you give me some variations? For example, could we play the love theme this way and that way, this orchestration, that orchestration? And he tried and tried and tried, but ultimately, when it was all said and done, he wrote those three cues, they sounded great, and he was giving it to me, and that was it. So when we actually finished the complete movie, we found that we had to take these three cues, and fortunately we had the original uh, recordings, which uh, were recorded with a number of microphones, so we could 
play the cue and, you know, not play the string section or not play the brass section or the music editor had to find ways that we could, like, make these three very, very impressive cues uh, work for the whole movie without just repeating them over and over again. And that was an interesting experience, very, very positive and yet somewhat troublesome uh, with, like, a really classical musician composer, I guess it comes down to that, you know, uh, every minute of music is a result of a lot of hard work, weeks and weeks of hard work, and you just don't have, you know, 12 cues and do it this way and do it that way and have enough for a whole movie. You know, in a sense, it was this group of uh, young people, all the people in this scene. It was like uh, being with your kids and um, for all the, the plus and minus of that. You know, they were all young uh, uh, and, uh, and talented. And, uh, you know, I love to work with young people. I always did uh, ever since I was a young person. Put you out of your misery like a lame horse. She's sort of sexy with those cute little baby vampire teeth. Anthony Hopkins uh, was, uh, you know, an, uh, a fine actor. He he didn't like to rehearse, and and I understand it now. I didn't then because I thought all theater actors they love to have three, four weeks, screw around, and kind of explore things, do it this way, do it that way, but. Uh, his his um, disposition was such that he he liked to, you know, if there was no rehearsal, it would be fine with him. Just come in and start to do it, do your job and go home. And uh, and, and so I really start off, start off at the wrong foot with him because I had a very lengthy rehearsal. But I found him very cooperative, you know. He was alternately enthusiastic and sort of impatient with it all. And I, I don't imagine that it was a um, one of his favorite movies to work on. Uh, uh, and I think partly I, I, uh, I, I took too much time in the rehearsal period, uh, uh, which I guess I was used to because I was a theater uh, director or trained in that way and, and uh, didn't know any other way. But now, as older I get, I, I think, you know, maybe there's something to speak. Because when you actually start to shoot and you have the, you're ready, you have the camera, you have the costumes and what have you, things happen that you almost can't rehearse or you, you can't guess are going to happen. And then, you know, it's, as I say, it's only what you've gathered. It's only you went out picking mushrooms and that day you got so many mushrooms and... Uh, Later on, when you cut the film, you'll um, you'll see whether or not the, they they were useful, and you'll make the movie out of what you have. This scene is an example of minimalism. The set is just uh, basically the light and the uh, the rope, and uh, you get the idea. She's on a boat. Of course, there's nothing there but the light and the rope, and. You know, uh, of course, I love that tradition, and, and you saw much of it over the great golden age of Hollywood, MGM films, and Warner Brothers films, where um, they were able to give you, by illusion, 
something uh, without having to build a whole set. And of course, it's it uh, enables you to spend more money on something really where you have to, and then you save the money uh, in that or in this case where it's just um, some candles. This sequence with the candles is very much the brainchild of the uh, you know the idea of having them dancing uh, in the candles and what have you was very much the brainchild of Michael Ballhouse, who was a wonderful man and really trying to get with this what ultimately he understood was a kind of far out style in which almost anything goes uh, and uh, and I think uh, if I'm correct, he dreamt up the idea of a scene where there were just some candles and, and, and what have you. I remember pushing Van Helsing in this direction that you see in this scene, that, you know, having him really come on a little, you know, hysterically, you know, and... Uh, you know, he's a great actor, and, and, you know, you could say, well, I encourage him to, to be a little over the top, but, you know, the whole movie is over the top, so what's over the top, you know? It's, uh, the top is determined by what the stylistic approach, and after all, we're making Dracula here. This is, uh, it's clearly not the, the, the first time it was being done. Uh, as I said, I think Dracula's probably the most oft-sequelized film on Earth, and, uh, you know, I don't get it. I I didn't think my job was to come in here and do the same thing over again. And so I took, uh, you know, I took the path that was really out of my heritage and my background and my training and uh, and my view of things. And that's all you can ask from, from a film, I think, is you want a film to have a personality given to it uh, uniquely, uh, by its maker that has something of the personality of the maker in it. You know, I'm even these days beginning to think uh, of an era in which I make movies, not only which you, you know, you tend to hold closer to the vest by, which is to say you don't show anyone the script and you don't ask anyone's opinion, but maybe even one day that you don't even show the film to anyone. Maybe you just make it and you look at it and then you say, okay. And then you put it in the closet drawer and you forget it. All you need to do that is a lot of money. Clearly I've used uh, parallel editing uh, and specifically in regard to a baptism and the Godfather. Clearly one of the tools you have in cinema is to juxtapose a ritual, a religious ritual of some type, as this is, a wedding, with uh, other action happening at the same time. And I've done it before and probably will do it again. There's a lot going on here because there are these various killings and awakening of of uh, Lucy. So yes, doing a um, collection of actions simultaneously happening and edited parallel with a ritual uh, is reminiscent of uh, the time I did it first, which was in the baptism scene of the Godfather. The Orthodox religions, Greek Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, is in fact the original Christianity and 
for my part, I think the most beautiful expression of Christianity, the Roman Catholicism is Christianity having been fused with the Roman Empire and really, I think, has more to do with the Roman Empire than it does with Christianity. We're shooting in a beautiful church here in uh, Los Angeles, a Greek Orthodox church. Um, we didn't have the scene in the movie on the first shoot, I forget. I think we did it in some one of those stylized way where you don't really have anything but some shadows on the wall. And looking at the film, I decided that having the real ceremony, the real wedding ceremony as it might be in that religion would be beautiful. And, and this is pretty authentic and, and I think very beautiful. Because we actually did the ceremony when we had the priest do the ceremony. So in a sense, we realized when we were all done that uh, Keanu and Winona uh, really were, are married as a result of this scene and the ceremony. That's clearly a uh, homage to Stanley Kubrick's movie, The Shining. I found the uh, actual uh, Romanian Orthodox churches when I did go and spend time in Romania, which I did recently, making Youth Without Youth, very beautiful. Maybe it's because I wasn't raised in it, and I'm able to see it as an expression of uh, spiritual feelings in terms of Christianity in a form that I don't find oppressive and mean, which is how I, my childhood impression of uh, religion was. And this, if I am talking about homage, this is Snow White in her glass coffin. As a child, I just loved Snow White because she had beautiful black hair like my mother, and I never, could forget the glass coffin that she was in and the seven dwarfs mourning her. That's what this scene sort of looks like to me. How can I believe? I want you to bring me before nightfall a set of post-mortem knives. An autopsy? Lucy? No, 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 not exactly. I just want to cut off her head and take out her heart. Of course, when you make movies, you know, you tend to shoot in order of the set that's up. So that scene, the funeral scene, was shot way early in the movie because we were shooting all the scenes in that mansion first and then way, 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 way later, these other scenes. For me, now that Lucy is dead, it is a sad homecoming. It is as if a part of me is dead too, except for the tiny hope that lives in me. I will again see my prince. Is he here? Now that I am married, I begin to understand the nature of my feelings for my strange friend. It was always in my thoughts. I don't remember where this set was. I know it was on some stage or another, but it's a pretty, I mean, this, this film, given that everything is built, with the exception of the Greek Orthodox um, church, which was a real church, um, there was a lot of work and production and sets building and the movie was not that costly a movie as I recall. I mean nowadays you hear of these movies that cost uh, you know 80 million dollars or 100 million dollars. This movie was was far less than that as I as I recall but when you look at it you realize that everything is a set and, and uh, all these people in costumes and the time to do this stuff um, I think we did it pretty economically to 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 put a stylish productions on film for uh, 
whatever it was. I must confess, and this maybe sounds disheartening, but when I look at this and I think of, you know, all the work it is to make a movie, any movie, I have to say that unless it's a theme or a subject matter that you have to make because it says something that has never been said before or it just is in your soul and you have to get it out, I can't see any point to wanting to make a film at all. The way it's been set up and the way the whole profession has gone, it's like, I mean, you have to tolerate so much stuff. You have to, you, you work on this movie for so long under such... Um, unenlightened uh, directives from the company financing it and when it's all said and done they publish in the newspaper like sports scores how much money it did and they show it in a theater that's a box with 10 other theaters and you have to you know not only hear the battery of critics that rightly or wrongly say their opinion but like absolutely everybody else it seems to me that the only reason to make a movie is because it's something that's never been made before and it is really part of your feelings about life and, and that therefore it should be something uh, that you should finance as well as uh, make because that's the only way that you can have the same right that a painter has when he paints a picture or a poet has when he writes a poem or... Uh, to a large extent, a novelist has when he writes a novel. That even really an, an opera composer more or less has the right to sit down and do his opera the way he, he sees it. Of course, I suppose to really you know produce Aida, you have to have someone pay for the elephants. But you don't hear so much about composers complaining because the... Uh, the Bay of Egypt didn't like the third act. and one. Of course, then he was Giuseppe Verdi, so uh, he didn't have to put up with it. A little child, I mean, these poor kids. I mean, the infant that I want to meet again someday was just a little infant, and we held her with great tenderness and affection, but this little kid who was in this scene is a had to be in the midst of all these obscenities and the, well, she was scared of the, the fake teeth in, 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 the, in Lucy. And uh, can you imagine what a little two-year-old thinks of something like that? It's, uh, we had a very difficult time calming her down and getting her to even be present on the set. My darling, kiss me and caress me. My darling This scene is, is very much influenced by Cocteau and uh, the candles lighting themselves. And of course, this scene is all acted backwards. She was in the coffin and started out in it and got out, and then we just we reversed it. Winona Ryder was really thrilled with the cast, and then she loved Gary Oldman, of course, Anthony Hopkins, and, and uh, Richard E. Grant was one of, all of the actors. It was sort of her dream cast, and it was her idea. She's the one who gave me the script, and, and in a way I was very, very uh, attentive to her wishes, and I looked into all the actors she loved. But, but um, she had a friend, Keanu, who was, you know, like a, just a friend, and, and uh, she liked very much and, and thought it was a very 
good person, and I did too. And so we, we cast uh, Keanu in the role. But it wasn't really my film in a sense. I mean, I was brought in, I was the director and what have you, but you know, it had been developed by other people. You see a whole bunch of other producers and stuff on it. And, you know, as I said, I was very fond of uh, Keanu. I thought he was a you know, really nice kid. Was she in great pain? Yeah, she was in great pain. Then we cut off her head and drove a stake to her heart and burned it, and then she found peace. Doctor! Please. <laughs> so, Mr. Harker, I must now ask you, as your doctor... You know, from my standpoint, I was doing this movie, as I said, on a string of movies that I planned to do a few movies, get myself on my feet, and then I wasn't going to do these movies. I wasn't going to do movies anymore. I was going to just do little personal things, which is more or less what I've done. No. No. Good. Then you have not infected your blood with the terrible disease that destroyed poor Lucy. Doctor, you must understand. I doubted everything, even my mind. I was impotent with fear. I know. But, sir, I know where the bastard sleeps. I brought him there, to Carfax Abbey. Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face, has the strength of 20 or more people. I think if people really sit down and read the Bram Stoker novel, they'll find that this film follows the intent and the spirit of the book closer than many, with the um, one exception of the uh, love story, which of course is the framing device or the motivating device uh, at the beginning. And, and as I say, it was pretty much created by Jim Hart in his original screenplay, which existed far um, before I did. I mean, I was brought in as a director to do that uh, script. You'll notice I have no screenwriting credit on this film, and that's because, uh, you know, beyond working as a director, making director's suggestions, I, I took no part in the writing of the screenplay. You know, I at the time I thought, well, I would do two movies. I would do this film, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and then I would do Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because I had a whole thought of how that should be done. And then at the last minute I said, what am I wasting my time with, you know, for? I should be reading books or something. And, uh, and we, of course, turned over that project to um, Kenneth Branagh and, you know, was involved as a producer. Of course, a producer, especially if the producer is a director, you have little <laughs> little to say to the new directors because you don't want to come off as though, well, you're some know-it-all director who's now going to produce some other guy's work. I gave my notes to Kenneth Branagh on his version of Frankenstein, and um, ultimately he, uh, you know, my, my main suggestion was they cut the first 20 five minutes off of it and get right to the story, which was the creation of the monster. But if you see that movie, and you start it a little later, a little bit more closer to the time he creates the monster, it's, uh, it has some interesting things in it.
is coming for you. such a shame that when they show these movies on television even uh even cable they they just cut them down i mean the entire tom waits performance is out of the version of dracula that they show on television and it's not because of anything other than to fit it into the time slot i'm no lunatic man i'm a sane man fighting for his soul my quarters are spare, but I think you will find them comfortable. Some water and toiletries at your disposal. You'll be completely safe here. Yeah, that's set as she walks out into the room and then you see the remains of the uh, abbey that was a miniature. Now, in the book of Dracula, the beast, as it were, was expressed in any number of forms, a wolf, a bat, and we had a ex- very talented special makeup design person, and, and, and fortunately or unfortunately, when we started shooting this movie, there was about two weeks while Gary Ullman was waiting to do his first scenes while we were shooting, according to the schedule, other scenes. And Gary would hang out with Greg Canham uh, and just, you know, wait while he wanted getting to shoot, and they would just keep coming up with, oh, well, why don't we have a, a, a creature that looks weird like this and so-and-so. And so, of course, every time they did, Greg would go in there at incredible cost and create yet another weird uh, rubber suit that that uh, Gary uh, would have to wear. I mean, it's very uncomfortable for the actors to be swathed in rubber uh, prosthetics and suits and body suits and stuff. And I said, hey, hey Gary, you were the one who dreamt up this weird... Uh, uh, bat creature, it was, uh, that was the added one. You have betrayed me. <clears throat> no, master. No, I, I serve you. I serve only you. This was a live action effect. In other words, Roman shot the room, and then he rewound the film, and then he shot just the swirling mist 
going into the bed, and it all had to, when you develop the film and look at it, because you don't develop the film until you make the final pass, it all has to work, as opposed to doing it after the fact when you can just um, you know, get it exactly so you know it is going to work. When you do it in the camera, you're sort of at the mercy. And, and then if you goof it up and you've shot it, now of course you shoot it a few times so you can do a few, and you save one in case it doesn't work. But if you goof it up and it doesn't work and you've already developed it, you're sort of dead. I do know. I feel I would never feel your touch again. No, you must tell me. I am nothing lifeless, soulless, hated and feared. I am dead to all the world. I am the monster the breathing men would kill. I am Dracula. I think if I was going to shoot a big, elaborate, sexy scene involving so-called sexual activity, I would hire a fight coordinator to do it because fight coordinators, I mean, obviously, if you're having a knife fight or you're having combat and punching and stabbing and stuff, you're not really doing it, but you have to make it look as though you're doing it. And it's all done by very careful choreography. Okay, the guy turns and he lifts the knife and then he brings the knife down like here and the camera sees it as being something very, very, uh, you know, a hit, when in fact it's not. 
And I think the same rationale would go for shooting a sexy scene. And I, if I would ever do one again, I, because it's not about, oh, get them in a sexy mood and then just shoot it. It's so awkward. And the camera has to be in a place that, you know, when people are smooching, they're all covering each other up. And uh, it doesn't necessarily make good pictures. So I would get, bring in a combat coordinator, a guy who's experienced with staging knife fights and fist fights and things. and and say, okay, here's here's what we got to do. You got to be lying here, and and uh, you're going to come in here, and looks like you're kissing him. And then you reach down, and you do this, and you do that, and it's all done through planning and sort of very logical and dispassionate uh, laying out, the same way you would do a fight. But nonetheless, uh, I think it was Orson Welles who said the two most difficult or convincing things to show in a movie are people praying or people making love. No, oh, I cannot let this be. Please, I don't care. I always think back of a scene in um, a movie made by Stephen Frears called The Grifters, in which the great actress Annette Benning, who was an experienced and, and accomplished theater actress, has to go in front of some crummy guy and suddenly just appear there totally naked in front of him by way of whatever the story point had to be made. And she did that scene totally naked, not a stitch of clothing on. And it's so amazing because she does the entire scene and she never stops acting. And that's the objective of, of, of an actress can do that. Then she has conquered all the phobias that we all have. I remember this now also, the fact that we had him... I remember I really blew my top once in rehearsal because we're trying to stage the scene and, uh, you know, I'm saying, okay, you're you're in the wolf suit, but, like, you're not in the wolf suit because we don't have the wolf suit, but, you know, you get up on the bed and, of course, they're all frightened because you look like a bat or whatever it is you look like. And um, he starts to get very, you know, he's a very good actor and he's a, a very intelligent person, but he started to, you know, in this early phase of rehearsal, saying to me, well, how can I go up on this bed and be this weird creature when I'm not in the weird creature suit? And I said, well, just pretend you are. And he started to get really, how can I do it, blah, blah, blah. And I just lost my cool. I remember I kicked the chair across the room and I just left and I said, forget it, goodbye. And I left the rehearsal. But, um, you know, I mean, I can see his part in it that, you know, how is he really going to go through the motions of what it might be like if he was in a, looked like a beast like this. So maybe that's a point for not trying to rehearse. I can remember when I was really young, I was directing a movie that the young Jack Nicholson was in and I was all in Big Sur and I went up there and they were all hanging around up in the lodge in Big Sur. And I'm this kind of erstwhile young theater director from New York and I said, well, let's rehearse. And Jack is saying things like, well, you know, that was a nice effect of the whole Dracula turns into millions of little rats. 
but uh, Jack is saying, well, you know, Francis, how are you going to rehearse? We're all supposed to be out in the forest, and we're here in this place. Well, I said, well, we can put chairs around and say they're trees, and we can rehearse. Said, oh, that, that's not going to, I don't want to do that. So I said, okay, we'll rehearse out in the forest. And, you know, it's funny. People who love to make movies and love to act and love to do all this stuff, when push comes to shove, even composers who love to compose, when push comes to shove, they either, whether through fear or what, they don't, it's very hard to get them to do it. You know, there's always a million reasons of, well, well, we can't really do it. So in this case, you know, what Gary was telling me is he, that my attempt to stage the scene was sort of futile because he wasn't in his rat suit. And, and I was saying, well, <clears throat> we know it's going to be something interesting and horrendous, so just kind of let's just work it out for the movement. Uh, but I guess this is what leads me to wonder if it even is, is any point to rehearsing. I would think that the actors would welcome the opportunity to get a chance to try out the lines and uh, start to feel their way toward it and also to see what they're getting back from the other actors so that the characters can deepen and evolve. But, um, you know, I mean, of course, every actor is different and has their own way of doing it. But more or less, generally speaking, as they get more and more um, into it, uh, there's a, whether it's a combination of fear, stage fright, or laziness, it's like you, you really have to uh, seduce them to get them to finally do it. Um, I think one actor who was always, as a young person, was always really uh, serious and just would do anything and wanted to jump into it and work hard, 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 was Tom Cruise, though I, of course, uh, I never worked with him after The Outsiders. In stormy seas, no doubt from the passage of the Count ship. He commands the winds, but we still have the advantage. By train, we can reach the Romanian port at Varna in three days. By ship, it will take him at least a week. Now we begin the final portion of the movie, which deals with them tracking down the Count in this mad attempt to head him off by going by train to get to Varna, which, by the way, is in Bulgaria, which is now in Bulgaria, before uh, the ship gets there. And, and through a combination of these uh, Romans' work, these miniature trains and mountains and double exposures, again, all done the old-fashioned way, we have the race against time as Mina is, is now clearly been become his uh, bride and is a vampire herself, no doubt. And they are uh, with her husband, Jonathan Harker, who you, whom you notice his hair is becoming white from all the horrific experiences he's been through. Um, they are going to head off Dracula and, and um, get him before he's able to be safe in the earth of his homeland. This is, you know, a glass shot or some old-fashioned style of 
40s studio effect. Received the wire from his clerk at Lloyd's. The Count's ship sailed past us in the night fog to the northern port of Galatz. The Black Devil is reading Nina's mind. How can we catch him now? Varna. Galatz. It's about 200 miles. I think that with the horses we can cut him off. Reach him before he reaches the castle. I will dispatch Van Helsing straight for Borgo Pass. If we fail in our task... So here we had the prospect of this huge scene in the book of where they're racing across the Carpathian Mountains and the snow and train stations and stuff. This is another effect shot. Nicely done. I forget even now watching what we had built and what we added. I think... Uh, I think my mind was going at this point, and I, uh, you know, it was a lot of stuff to shoot in a relatively rapid time. This is for sure a glass shot where the road is real and then the rest is painted. Now here we're in our little, this little, the huge stage, which just has all around it remnants of these mountains. And this last sequence, which actually looks pretty good is really all shot in this one stage has outsmarted us again we learned that his gypsies took charge of the vampire's box at galatz and are now on the borgo pass road as i've said bef before it was great to have my son's collaboration because unlike all the many of the other professionals in the film industry basically there's a pressure to kind of do things the way you always do them and when you consider that for a second and realize that you know there's the stunt coordinators and there's the effects guys and there are the prop guys and for all these people and they all make one movie after another uh you begin to wonder why the movies you go to see sort of all look the same and are alike. And that's because the solutions to problems are done a certain way. Uh, and and when you're making a movie and you have that stunt guy, he says, well, you fall off the horse this way. and But that's the way they fall off the horse in every movie. And, I mean, good reason, because it's probably the safe way. But But it's sort of a... It's an undertow when you make a industrial film, which this is, to do it the same way they're used to doing it. And there's so much pressure, uh, two kinds of pressure against innovation. I mean, there's the fact that they don't know how to do it another way, but there's also a kind of peer pressure. In other words, if you have a photographer and you ask to do the photographer to do something stupid or unconventional he's um he's worried that it's not so much what you want as the director he's he's worried what um his peers are going to say is he going to be laughed at at the photographer's ball when they all get together so you kind of are working against a, uh, a force to have you make the film the way they're all made so that nobody nothing sticks out too much and uh, you find that in order to break that, you have to 
find something excessive and demanding in yourself. My daughter Sophia does it another way. She's a tiny woman. She's not. A, she's a very petite woman and very sweet and gentle, but she's just hard as nails underneath. So she'll just say, well, I don't want to do it that way. And that's all. But when she says, I don't want to do it that way, she really is not going to do it that way. And nothing on earth can change her. I'm kind of much more emotional. And that was an effect, by the way, that I had tried to get the extra money for, uh, I, I recall, the, the women killing the horses and all of this stuff here. There was no money budgeted for any of this stuff. And when I went to the company to ask permission to do these effects, uh, I recall it was related to this section. This is the famous Kukri knife as the, that the, uh, the famous warriors from Nepal, the Gurkhas, use. Not so much for the three brides of Dracula. They you know, cut off your heads and they're, they're finished. This is all inside. The snowy scene is all inside this stage, and the whole subsequent chase, as I've said before, is all shot there. He says that the that uh, the gypsies, uh, the the count's gypsies, took. Uh, took control of the last of the wagon with the box of his dirt to get him back, and they were pursuing those gypsies. They're racing against the sunset. Maybe too late. God help us. was to show that sort of Mina had that pixelated vision that she wasn't she was a vampire now she need the binoculars that's a classic fall off the horse and be dragged that, that some wonderful stunt guy who probably done it a hundred times did it for us It is remarkable, though, that this chase has as much variation as it has because it's just all shot in the same place. I mean, it's, there's hardly any set there at all. Of course, it's a, this is a glass shot. It's augmented by effects. Those blue rings of fire, I do believe, were done on an optical printer. You can tell the difference. I mean, that 
the other effects done in camera are much more kind of organically whole. I mean, they're part of the scene, because they are. I don't know, I think the effect has a slightly different feel. Much of these shots are shot by Roman because we were the two of us and we had all this slew of work to do and all the, you know, every shot, every close-up, every guy on a horse and falling and so on and so. There was so many shots we had to get and we were really running out of time and, and I remember we were like a, a two-man team here doing these things. And it was, pretty, as I said, pretty much in this one stage. of that as a kind of jack-in-the-box effect where he just bursts out of the out of the box and it all explodes all that's a live mechanical effect and those are those are tricky to do because you really have to do them or even for hitting a guy and having him fly 14 feet when my time comes will you do the same to me Let them go. Our work is finished here. Hers has just begun. Lindsay. become God's madmen. All of us. And for the large, 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 large part, all these lines are out of the book. <laughs> the sequence, which is the final scene between Dracula and Mina. I remember I showed, when I was working on the film, and I showed it to my friend George Lucas, and he looked and he said, well, he said, you know, he said, I think Mina ought to cut off his head. And I said, wow, that's, you know, pretty disgusting. And he says, well, he said, well, yeah, but that's the greatest act of she could give him is to... I understood at last how my love that, that, you know... To give him the peace and and the the, the moment of, of once again being taken to God's breast can only be given to him by cutting off his head. Uh, 
So I said, yeah, you know, there's... I, hadn't shot, I mean, I hadn't quite shot it that way. And so I said, yeah, no, I think you're right. And so I did. This, I, I shot her pushing the, the stake through the heart. That was the original version, but George had thought that to really be sure that he's never going to be a vampire again, I thought it was pretty clear. I mean, as I did it, the sparks went in, the thing went through the heart, like the stake through the heart. But George thought, oh, yeah, you should cut off his head. You should cut off his head. That's the greatest act of love she could do. And I said, okay, I can see it. If they don't get it with the stake going through the heart, we'll cut off his head. It's a pretty startling thing to do. And I shot it late in the game, like after the, you know, the film was only three weeks away from being released. And such is the end. And they go off to heaven as lovers always do, Paola and Francesca, Dracula and Elisabetta, and on and on. The end. I, I never, you know, because it's a love story, it's kind of maybe less scary than the typical Dracula where he's like a monster, but, you know, my idea was to make it with young people and to make it more romantic and, in fact, more sexy to go, you know, the Brides of Dracula and, and the various scenes with Sadie and, and combining eroticism. When Mina begins to be infected by the blood of the vampire that, you know, she gets to be sort of provocatively sexy. And, in fact, she, she was pretty sexy in that scene with uh, Anthony Hopkins, you know, where she brings him down to her level and almost exalts in the fact that she, she has uh, him stoked up. So, it, you know, it was a, supposed to be a, a more sexy version. It, I don't feel it's so scary a version, you know, um, maybe a little bit, but you know, I think the fact that it has this love story and this love theme tends to work against um, that. You know, it's my take on Jim Hart's script, which is, I guess, all a director can do. I wasn't too happy working on this film. You know, I had made the decision at that point in my life uh, when I accepted what was something I thought I would never do, which was to make a third Godfather film uh, after uh, really being sort of bankrupted by um, my adventure on the one from the heart. 
But Godfather Three led me to Dracula, and it led me to uh, being financially solvent, which I very uh, wisely invested in the wine and and food and resort business, and was able to achieve a, a final, uh, hopefully final. Uh, freedom from the the film industry as an industry, and uh, you know, as I continue now, as I speak to you, it's uh, 2006, and I am uh, just recently 67 years old, or as I like to call it, 5017. And I um, I decided to you know do what I always felt I want to do, which is to be an amateur and. Like those great Russian composers, you know, Borodin and Tchaikovsky and uh, people who were doctors and professional people who just wrote music because they loved it and they were amateurs. I now am uh, a businessman in the, in the wonderful fields of food, wine, and adventure. And I, um, if I make films, which I would li like to continue doing and, and am continuing to do, I'll do it as my, uh, my hobby. I hope you've enjoyed these thoughts and uh, comments, stories about the film, and, and I've been, certainly enjoyed sharing uh, my memories, really. Thank you so much.